Hey everybody, welcome to Una Lom, the career exploration podcast, where we have set out to explore the daunting yet exciting world of careers. Join us as we speak to professionals from all over the world. In today's episode, we will be talking to Mr. Anand, a prolific data scientist who is the founder and CEO of Gramina, a data science consulting and AI company. A pioneer in his field, Mr. Anand believes in the art of storytelling using data, which has the power to influence decisions. One of the leading data scientists of our day, he will be introducing us to the exciting world of data science. So, uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've done so far? Um, sure. So, let me start with myself, where all of my work and data began, which was at college. I have an engineering degree, but that's really not out of choice. And to be honest, I've never done a single day's work in chemical engineering uh, mm-hmm. since I graduated. And I think the world is a better place for that. But that's really where I picked up what um uh, skills and interest i have for data and what i'm really passionate about is telling stories from data over the years i've followed that passion to becoming a data scientist and i also founded my own data science company along with my co-founders about 10 years ago that's mm-hmm. gramno and to me that's pretty much the most important thing in my life today but that part i uh, live in bangalore and Singapore actually shuttling back and forth at least pre-COVID and uh, been married for the last 19 years. My wife knows me well enough to know that if she needs me to do something, she'd better make an appointment. Otherwise, I don't even do stuff at home. My daughter's 15 and she's responsible for my two major addictions, which is playing Minecraft and reading oh. Calvin and Hobbes. So one thing that I'm really proud of in life it is that I've and transcribed every single Calvin and Hobbes strip between 2001 to 2007. I typed out every single one of the Calvin and Hobbes strips that ever existed. Wow. <laughs> Could you please tell us a little bit more about your company? What we do is help people understand data better. That's at the soul of it. So um, the crux of it is that there's a whole lot more data today than we ever imagined. But the volume of data, while it's you know, growing 60% every year, our ability to understand it hasn't grown for centuries. And we need a way of making that easier. That's what we do. So to give you a sense of how we do that, we usually work with organizations to help them make sense out of that data, specifically by extracting insights and narrating stories. An insight is not an analysis. An insight to me, must meet three criteria. It must be big. Don't give some tiny little uh, uh, piece of information. It must be useful. In other words, it should be actionable. And it must be surprising. There's no point telling people what they already know. And these must be conveyed as a story, something that's memorable, something that can be shared, something that will spread. That's what we do. For example, we were working with a poultry company. And they were looking at what they can do to improve their profit margins. It turns out that one of the major factors for a poultry company to improve profit margins is the mortality. That is, if you place 100 birds in a farm and 90 survive to adulthood, that's a huge loss. 
whereas if 95 survive that's actually fantastic so in that 5% range is where the bulk of their profit is and one of their questions was what makes a difference to this they had a theory they believed that the temperature control was a significant factor so in the farms that had air cooling or at least a fan they believed that the mortality would be much lower than another farms and they were right in that by controlling temperature we found through data that there can be as much as a 24% impact on the mortality rates but what we also found was that there's one factor which has an even larger impact the litter material what's placed on the floor has an even larger impact and coir as a litter material could make as much as a 92% impact on the mortality rate something that they had not anticipated was that large and something that within one quarter was able to effectively in just 800 farms make a 13% improvement just in that one quarter on their bottom line that's an example or for example we were working with the education department in india and one of their questions was we know how students perform across subjects we also have survey data on their behavioral habits so we'd love to understand things that behaviors that have an impact on their performance so for instance just taking tuitions really help hmm. so that's another example where we were exploring that data and there are several behaviors that are of interest for example watching television does it help or does it hurt and the short answer is the difference between watching tv once a week versus once a day is enormous in almost every subject there is a deterioration performance for those who watch tv only once a week they do reasonably well versus those who watch tv daily who do considerably worse in mathematics this is so huge that it's it's so huge that people who watch tv kids who watch tv on a daily basis do even better is even worse than kids that are below the poverty line on the other hand however this is not true for every subject it turns out that they actually do slightly better in english if they watch more tv okay that's kind of understandable and it turns out that if you take the behavior playing games right if you play games on a daily basis it turns out that it actually reduces the marks a little bit in most subjects but it actually has a huge positive impact on mathematics so it's almost like a parent can decide so do i want my child to be you know say a journalist or do i want my child to be uh, an engineer mathematician whatever and then decide okay now you sit in front of the tv you go out and play <laughs> wow that is so amazing yeah <laughs> you're able to take all these insights from like data and yeah, that's just really amazing i mean i knew data science was a good field but like the examples that you give it's really nice so um There are different opportunities within data science for, like you know, we've heard of like data engineers, data analysts, data scientists. And like, what are the different opportunities, and like, how would you like? What are their roles? So, let's take the three you mentioned um, and talk about them: data scientist, data analyst, and uh, data engineer. So, it's uh, data analyst used to be the term for people who were exploring data. In fact, people just call them analysts. that's still a role that exists today um uh, data scientists that was a term that was 
coined about what 10 years ago in fact when i started grammar the role that i took for myself was chief data scientist because that was like a hot new term i said yeah i get to pick my own title if i'm starting my own company right uh it's a term that has evolved over the years but basically a data scientist was someone who would use data to solve a real life problem and communicate what that solution is in a way that is kind of like what a data analyst would do but with a little more skill than an analyst would do so in a way you could say that the data scientist is a modern version of a data analyst but that term has evolved over the years to specifically talk about someone who can do a bit more than the data analyst used to do specifically data analysts generally relied on statistics and there are techniques that involve a lot more programming today that come under the umbrella of machine learning and deep learning that a data scientist is generally more skilled at that's one way of looking at it another way of looking at a data scientist is a data scientist is a highly paid analyst ultimately there's a difference in salary that just that job title commands a data engineer is a different breed um a way of thinking about a data engineer is the person who does all the programming to make sure that the data engineer can do their work someone who takes that analysis and automates it so that instead of the data engineer doing it manually the program that the data sorry instead of the data scientist doing it manually the program that the data scientist has written can be run in an automated way or someone who crunches all the data to give it to the data engineer as to the data scientist that's broadly the role of a data engineer that apart there are a whole series of roles in the space that are emerging one is a data translator the person who tells the data scientist this is the business problem and therefore this is the data problem that needs to be solved for example in the case of the poultry company uh, the data scientist would find out uh, well okay the data translator would talk to the business and ask them what do you really want and learn that they need to figure out what is the one thing that makes the biggest difference to mortality and these are the various things that they have as a hypothesis the data translator will go to the data scientist and say look i've got a data set i want you to figure out what makes the largest difference to this last column is it the first second third fourth or fifth column and the data scientist says look i don't care what these columns are i'll just get you the answer and the data translator takes the third column as the largest factor and goes back and says you know what you thought that cooling was the largest factor but it's actually litter material that's the largest factor okay. otherwise the data scientist would say you gave me six columns column number 3 was the largest factor what does that even mean is how most people would react to that another emerging role is that of a decision scientist someone who takes these and figures out how it needs to be used in the organization this is a role that is even more nascent than a data translator we haven't really figured this out but the point is that increasingly data is being used to make decisions and the role of a decision scientist is someone who architects that meaning figures out what are the kinds of problems to solve and once they are solved how to take those answers and convert them into action another role is that of a data storyteller and this is not necessarily an independent role many of the roles that i'm talking about earlier were all under the umbrella of a data scientist data scientist would do data engineering analysis data translation decision science data storytelling but now these have started splitting into specializations the role of a data storyteller is to communicate what the person said the data scientist said in a way that translates to meaningful action so 
they would for example take the data scientist result uh, the data uh, uh, translator would probably say look uh, watching tv more hurts in every other subject but uh, in english it helps or playing games more hurts every subject except for mathematics the data storyteller will convert that into something a whole lot more memorable and actionable they'd say what you need to do if your child if you want your child to be a journalist is put them in front of the tv what you need to do if you want them to become an engineer is send them out to play same thing but communicated in a way that people will understand remember know and make it into a story and that's an integral part of communicating the results of data science another is the role of a visual designer someone who can put this together in a form that is a visual story not just a verbal story and that involves not just using charts but uh, going beyond charts potentially infographics and communicating things in any which way that people will take one look at and say ah i get it making the statement of pictures worth a thousand words true so data translator decision scientist data storyteller visual designer these are roles that are emerging in the data science space apart from data analyst data scientist and data engineer could tell us what skills and qualifications are required to become a data scientist it used to be a combination of programming analysis design and business knowledge these days it's mostly just analysis oh like in terms of like you know degrees or like like, like do you just need like a bachelor's or a master's or a phd like qualification a formal qualification there are a number of courses in data science that are emerging universities have started offering them in any case uh, organizations outside of universities have always been offering them so it isn't too far when uh, a degree in data science is offered by the vast majority of the universities but until then most people can just get a, a, a diploma of some kind from recognized universities so a year or two ago i would have given you a few other options but today the answer is fairly straightforward get a, a degree or a diploma or some qualification in data science itself there are enough of those uh speaking about like data science projects could you tell us uh, some of the best real life data science projects you've come across uh let me tell you about one that we were working with um recently this is the world mosquito program and what they do is uh, I, I, i'm always fascinated by how they operate so their um what they found was that an effective way of controlling the diseases spread by mosquitoes such as dengue and others is by infecting mosquitoes with a bacteria called wolbachia and it's a fairly expensive process but once infected when these mosquitoes breed these mosquitoes and their offsprings can no longer infect uh humans or any any other animal with a huge number of uh, diseases uh, I, i always smile at the idea of effectively biting the mosquitoes back and injecting a bacteria in them but since it's an expensive process you've got to release these carefully uh, at the spots where there's a high human population 
And for that, you need to go to the planning authorities, get permission. I mean, you can't just randomly go into a city and release a bunch of infected mosquitoes, right? You've got to work with these people. And uh, that takes a fair bit of time, sometimes in the order of three months. The question is, where are the most populated areas? Now, even the local authorities don't necessarily know. I mean, heuristically, they know. But you need to release it within a 100 meter by 100 meter uh, grid for maximum effectiveness. And data for that kind of population density that is current simply doesn't exist. So uh, what we did along with them was we said, look, we know what the population density of the world is using well, a, a global data set at a one kilometer by one kilometer level. It's not granular enough, but it's pretty recent. We also know from satellite imagery where the buildings are more concentrated. At least visually, we can say, oh, you know, this area, there's a lot more buildings. This area, there are a lot fewer buildings. So is there a way by which we can, just by looking at the building footprint in, uh, now let's say we take a one kilometer by one kilometer grid, break it up into 10 by 10. So there are 100 little squares inside that box. We know the total population of the box. If we overlay a satellite image of buildings behind it, can we somehow figure out where the buildings are more and where the buildings are less. So if there's a little lake in the middle, we can say there should be zero population there because people can't live in a lake. And redistribute that total population in proportion to the buildings around. So that way we'll get the population accurate to a 100 meter by 100 meter grid. So this requires one, getting the population at a one kilometer by one kilometer grid. Second, getting that satellite imagery. So far, this is easy. And then from that satellite imagery, converting it into a series of little grids where you say, here's where there are more buildings, here's where there are less buildings. That's where a technique known as deep learning comes in, where we train it with some earlier data and say, look, algorithm, I've told you for this satellite image, this is where the buildings are, this is where the buildings are. And now you learn from that and do it. Now, how does one teach it at that scale? One possibility is manually. But the good part is there are enough data sets out there, such as with OpenStreetMap, that actually show the building footprints. So we train it based on that. And then the algorithm takes the city, breaks it down into where the buildings are and are not. And then finally says, this is the most populated 100 meter by 100 meter grid. And this is where it's not. So something that used to take as long as three months end-to-end -end cycle, now just takes a few hours. You toss it at the system, it gives you the answer. They go to the authorities, get permission or not. And if they say no, then they have the second largest, they have the third largest. And it's a very seamless process. So uh, what are some, like for someone who's getting into data science, uh, what are some things that they should really focus on, like, like in maths and programming and like, what are some resources they can reach out to? Well, if someone's uh, getting into data science, um, they really would, they're likely to be taking a course of some kind anyway. And a formal course is a great idea. And those come with their own set of resources. So rather than um, add on to that, let me take a, a different tack, which is something that I find, at least when I'm recruiting people, something that I find that most data scientists lack, which is practice. And for that, I have a simple suggestion. Learn based on need. That is solve real problems, practice data science with personal data sets. The sheer number of questions that one can answer with your own data is remarkable. So for example, when should you buy a flight ticket? When I was buying flight tickets and I wanted to make sure that it was the cheapest ticket that I could buy, I scraped a whole series of uh, flight comparison uh, search engines and found that if 
you buy a flight ticket um, eight days before the flight. That's typically when it's the cheapest. A useful rule of thumb. You know, seven days before, they typically change the price and it's usually a little higher. So buy it eight days before. That gives you the maximum trade-off between flexibility and uh, uh, price. Or what is the best laptop you want to buy? Scrape all of the data. Look at what is the cost of one gigahertz additional speed on the CPU, one gigabyte of additional RAM, one gigabyte of additional hard disk. And then based on that, see what the expected price for such a configuration that you, such as you want should be and see which is the cheapest against that. In fact, that's how I bought many of my laptops and some of them have lasted for well, half a dozen years. Or what are the kinds of grammatical mistakes you often make? Just take your test, text, run it, uh, take all the text you write, run it through a grammar checker. In my case, I found that the single most common mistake that I make is I place a comma before and. X and Y does not require a comma before the and, but I invariably do that. Or what kind of music do I like? I was going through my ratings of my own music collection and found quite surprisingly that my favorite music composer is actually someone who was composing in the 1950s, G. Ramanathan is his name. Mm -hmm. Or who do you call the most? Who do you message the most? Who do you message the most? Who doesn't message you back? or vice versa, who messages you the most, whom you don't message back, how do you spend your time looking at your calendar data, when do you exercise, when do you sleep, I mean, your phone, your laptop, the, and the internet, these are sources of so much information related to you, that you can practice data science with your own data sets to solve your own problems. And the one thing that I ask people to do outside of whatever formal curriculum they have is practice. And there's really no shortage of personal problems to practice data, uh, data science on. It's really amazing because like, I, I feel like you have to be really like observing, you know, you should be able to observe things and like be able to connect the dots, draw the patterns between things. Yeah. True. And a lot of it is just practice. It's mm -hmm. uh, not as if this is, and this can be taught, this can be learned. And the way you do it is sometimes just simple. If you, uh, let's say, you decide that you want to be more observant with data every day. Take a simple, take a sheet of paper and write down, what could I do? What could I do? And initially for the first two, three days, there'll be a blank sheet of paper and it'll give you a headache. But after a point, you'd be able to come up with a dozen in a day. Um, could you tell us how much of what you learned in school and college has helped you in your career path? Okay. Um, well, so I learned programming uh, when I was in class six. So uh, our school bought a computer. I was in one of the first courses there. And I distinctly remember wearing these shorts and a uh, little t-shirt and uh, taking my notebook to school where I had written the answer to the program that they had asked yesterday. Now, obviously, since there are only two computers out there, you don't program on the computer, you program on your notebook. And then if the teacher says your program is right, then you go and get to key it in, which is fun. But uh, I distinctly remember the day when our uh, teacher, uh, Mr. Kozan Raman, he asked, so who solved yesterday's problem? And I raised my hand and I looked around and it turns out that I was the only one who had raised my hand. So I got a total kick out of it. And I was hooked to computers and that's lasted. So for the last 35 years, I think I've pretty much programmed every day. So one thing that I've learned from that, which I'd pass on is kind of an obvious one, which is if you have a passion, follow it. And a fair bit of what you learn in school 
also teaches you what you like and what you don't like. You'll stumble upon your passions. So great discovery. Just pick your career based on what you like. Um, another subject, um, statistics. Statistics is not something that I had any special interest in. I took it in school. I had it again when I was doing my engineering. I had it again when I was doing my MBA. And I'd done it three times. So by this time, I was pretty familiar with it. So when the time came when I needed to analyze data, I didn't have any problem. Statistics was done it three times. Not that I particularly love it, enjoy it, but if I need it, it's easy. And that too, I found helps. Repetition helps. You do the same thing over and over again. It sticks. We don't know when we might need it. But I find that the fact that there were a number of things that I learned repeatedly over time in school and college has paid off in the future. Many of them have not, but the ones that do, they do pay off. Analysis helped too, but it's not something that I learned at school or college. Um, there is no subject under the name of analysis. And I had to figure that out on my own. And the way that came about was mostly the various mathematics, physics, engineering courses that I took where you have a problem and you've got to solve the problem. And that rigor of problem solving is exactly what you do in any kind of analysis. So what I took away from that is that sometimes it's not just what you learn, but how you learn it. The maths or the physics that we learn in themselves have a certain benefit, but the process of learning matters too. And the skills that they impart to us, the rigor that they give us can be applied to a whole variety of areas. And for me in data science, that made a huge difference. Yeah. I was just going to add another thing that is actually pretty critical when it comes to uh, data science is design. And again, I had no course that taught me design. I had no interest in design. I have no skill or aptitude for design, but I had a need. So I literally had to turn to textbooks and the internet to see what I could learn from design. And it's, it's, it's crazy. And since that, uh, until I was what, 35, I knew nothing about design. And uh, by the time I was 45, I was a guest faculty at pretty much all the top design schools in India. And the crazy thing about this is that it's not actually what we learn, but simply the ability to learn that helps us in school. And what helps there most, I think, is the knack of learning subjects you don't like. I have no interest in design, but I have a need, just as everyone has a need in school and college to pass. If you learn the art of learning something, whether you like it or not, that discipline pays off as well. That's so amazing. I mean, like, we are all in a first year of college, like college, and like, I think this is the perfect time to apply it. So. Exactly. So, uh, we are... What are some uh, challenges within data science? Okay. Uh, I remember in my uh, second year of college, we had a professor who had set a pretty tough piece of homework. And he said, next day, tomorrow I'm going to quiz you on the answer. So make sure you solve it. Okay. I had forgotten to do it at home. So early in the morning, I quickly rushed through the answers and went into class. And he said, question number three. I raised my hand. What is the answer? 173. He said, 173 what? Then I looked at my sheet of paper, looked at the other sheet of my notes, scrambled around. And I realized I had no, no clue what the question was. So I looked at him blank-faced, 173 kg, liters, meters. I have no idea. 
And that pretty much summarizes the number one challenge we have in the data science community. We focus on solving a data problem. We have no clue what that problem really means. The vast majority of the people who are asked, you know, here's my challenge. They say, oh, okay, fine, I'm going to apply regression. I did this, I did this, I got this answer. Okay, what does that answer mean? I don't know. I don't even know what the problem means. So it's effectively like they're acting like a computer that's being asked to explain what it means. And a computer says, look, I'm not in the meaning business. I'm in the computation business. That to me is the number one problem. And it'll become clearer why I say that this is a, a, a problem soon. But the short summary of why this is a problem is that a computer can do computing better than a human can. The stuff that it can't do is the interpretation. So which means that one of the biggest problems is the, in the data science community is that people are betting against computers. Not a good thing to do. Um, another problem, I, I was asking uh, uh, an interview candidate, how will you find the single largest factor that affects something? Let's say student marks. His answer was, I'll use TensorFlow and I'll build a deep learning model. Wait, hold on. What's my question? What's your answer? I ask you for the technique. You give me a tool and jargon. And that is another challenge that we're often facing today, that there is a strong data science is uh, an industry that pays a lot. And the demand is high. The pay scale is rising. Therefore, it's a pretty attractive opportunity. And a lot of people, rightly, are focusing on getting a higher salary by making sure that they add keywords to their resume. Perfectly fine. Trouble is, the impact is that, therefore, there's a growing skill gap in the industry, despite a large number of people. Managers often say, look, I've hired 200 data scientists. I still don't get a sensible answer to any question that I ask. And you can see how this relates to the first challenge. There is a branch or technique called AutoML or Auto Machine Learning, which is about kind of automatically trying to figure out what the best model is to solve the problem. What a lot of data scientists do today is try and figure out the best model. And when AutoML becomes more prevalent, what they're doing becomes irrelevant. So people are effectively betting against the techniques by saying, I can do this manually today. Yeah, I see this as the biggest challenge in the data science community. There is a lot more focus on uh, how to do things rather than figuring out what they mean. Um, we have a few listeners' questions now. Um, could you tell us what are the small things that uh, students of data science should avoid during interviews? Rather than answer that question specifically, let me give focus on a useful answer. Let me tell you what are mistakes that data science uh, students have made during interviews that have led me to reject them. The reason I'm saying is not a direct answer to the question is because these mistakes are not made just by data science students. These mistakes are made by a large group of people. The number... Primarily, the number one reason I reject them is because of communication, mm. soft skills in general. The most, in, uh, the, the top question that data science students ask me is, how should I improve my data science skills? That has a clear answer. But the reason they're asking that question is assuming that improving their data science skills is what will lead to them getting a job. The number one reason I reject people is because 
of their lack of communication skills, not lack of data science skills. And communication goes two ways. One part of it is, can you speak clearly? Can you help me understand what you're saying? Not everyone can. Not for lack of words, but for lack of clarity of thought. But a bigger part of communication is listening. You've got to know what I'm asking before you can give me a relevant answer. When I say, how will you find the biggest factor that affects, say, student marks? You've got to understand that the answer I expect can't possibly be TensorFlow or build a deep learning model. It's got to be an approach. It's got to be a process. And this requires a different kind of practice. And the reason why most data science students are unpracticed in it is because they haven't, they assume that to get a data science job, they need better data science skills and they optimize for it. And it works up to a point. To be fair, this is obviously only true of those who have reasonably good data science skills. So I'm addressing that group. For the others, I'll basically say, look, get reasonably good in data science that you'll get in an interview call. But in the interview, if you've got a call, you probably already have the skills to get through that interview. Focus on communication. Got it. Uh, so uh, the next listener's question is, uh, is data science a stable career? What does the future of data science look like? I remember a doctor once said, 50% of what we know in medicine today is wrong. We just don't know which 50%. As recently as 100 years ago, infants were operated on without anesthetics. This was considered a best practice at that time. Now, if in a field like medicine, which is thousands of years old, we've learned this only in the last century, data science is 10 years old. Will it even survive the century as a career is an open question. No, it's a very young field. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of turmoil in skills. What a data scientist needed 10 years ago is just completely out of question to ask for today. It just has no meaning. So yeah, just be prepared to learn because the field is changing rapidly. So that's all for today's episode. Unalom is available on a bunch of streaming platforms such as Google Podcasts, YouTube and Spotify. So be sure to follow us on your favorite streaming platform. Until next time. <laughs>